It's the Loose Filter Podcast, a show where we talk about music not quite like you'd expect. And this week's episode is a typical example of that. I am your host, as always, Stuart Sims. And like I said, we talk about music in ways you wouldn't expect. And it's right in the name of the podcast, of course. We try to uh, take in creative work of all kinds, but mostly music, with as loose a filter as possible and try to find what is really terrific and worth paying attention to in all kinds of music and all kinds of creative activity by our fellow human beings. We like liking things. This episode is no exception, and we're calling it, it is episode, by the way, 116, and we are calling it Sufjan Brahms and synth pop. If that seems like a random collection of words to you, it was little more than that to us at the start of this episode. We decided for this one to, I guess Dave, Anthony, and I were feeling sort of saucy the afternoon we recorded this, to really challenge ourselves and kind of the loose filter, the basic idea of the loose filter concept, and pick three random uh bodies of music or albums or composers or artists, three of them randomly, and see if we could find connections uh, among their work somehow in their sound world or their, their histories or their cultural perspectives or something, something that might connect uh, these three random musics. And so that's what we did. And we decided to use Dave's recent listening list on his iPhone, which we thought would be as random as anything because Dave is as eclectic uh, in his listening as anyone as I have ever met. And it ended up with uh, the episode we have here, which features uh, the music of Sufjan Stevens, Johannes Brahms, and early 80s synth pop. It was uh, ended up being kind of a fascinating conversation, I think, and certainly was a lot of fun, and we listened to some really interesting music. And uh, not to spoil it here at the front, but I will give away that we did manage to find some connections, and uh, I think you'll find those interesting as well. Uh, I hope you enjoyed this episode. As always, you can find us online at loosefilter.com and on SoundCloud and iTunes. Here's episode 116, Sufjan, Brahms, and Synthpop. Hi, and welcome to the Loose Filter Podcast. This is your host, Stuart Sims, and with me on this episode are... Dave Gant and Anthony Campolo. And we have a, for you this week, a very tightly constructed and thoroughly planned episode that we call, What Has Dave Been Listening To Lately? <laughs> what what music would Dave have at his most played iTunes list? You flew oh, by most, most played. Yeah. Recent, What's going to be at the track. top? What's going to be there? And it was, uh, it was, it was Sufjan Stevens. Souflon, Soufflé Stevens, Souflon, Souflon, Souflon Stevens. A lot of Brahms is going to be in there, and then I've been listening to a lot of like early synth pop. 
Yeah, and so we we were talking about we were talking earlier. We kind of got here with sort of a loose idea of what we wanted the episode to be, but uh, and then we made it even looser. And then we made it even looser <laughs> because Anthony asked Dave just like, "Hey, what would be on you know like your your recently played list or your most played list?" and we thought that it was such a ridiculous... <laughs> like three things that have nothing to do with each that other. We, we have taken the challenge. We are going to find a connection. Because they, they do have something to do with each other. Like Dave likes all they, of them. They, Dave like likes them. So there's some thread there. I like. Yeah, there's some thread there that is uh, going to combine these really uh, highly dissimilar music. So Sufjan Stevens, the darling of the indie, what, indie pop world yeah, what is indie it? pop indie yeah pop. tremendous artist independent artist mm-hmm. but does like sort of what uh folk music that is composed up beefed yeah, up with exactly. instruments well, and, and, electronic and occasionally really not and, not built up yeah, at, at this all point, you he's know, expanded to yeah. so many realms and so many different sounds and worlds but i'd say at the heart of his sound he's he's a he's a folk musician yeah folk singer they, folk, you can yeah. see it they all kind of start like him just you know playing piano or strumming a guitar and just writing the songs right right yeah. multi-instrumentalist and so forth so we'll pick you know whatever works we think of with him and then okay so your second one was johannes brahms yeah because brahms is awesome and right we should say for those of you all-time relevant maybe if you don't know i don't know what our listeners know and don't know <laughs> i guess i don't want to insult the audience but obviously the uh the the very famous 19th century composer is who we're talking about, orchestral music primarily. And then uh, synth-pop. What is synth-pop? Synth-pop is pop music with synth- synthesizers. And now we just call it pop. Which is just pop yeah. music, right. So why, why but, is it its own? But there was a period of time where um, in the mostly the early 80s, they're, they're sort of leaning towards it in the late 70s, but, but not really. It's really kind of the early 80s when it strikes, where they started blending the, the synthesizer music that was getting popular in Germany with straight ed pop, they called it synth pop. <laughs> I don't know. There's not really. It's not really naming. that complicated. Well, and I remember having actually. I, I do have and a lot of it's as a terrible. Kid. Yeah, a lot of it. But I kind of feel like because I I got into synthesizers and so I started listening to like kind of those German or early synthesizers because I was like, we got to start from the beginning here. You know, figure out what. Right, the you roots. know the roots, and this is I the should fundamentals. I would direct listeners to our episode about minimalism and its influence. Yeah. We we talked about this genre Krautrock. of of krautrock in in pretty pretty good detail. Yeah. So if if you're curious about what he's talking about, the origin of that synthesizer music that came out of Germany, that's what that is. But I feel like it fell out of favor so quickly. That there's a, that like the good stuff got kind of thrown out to so hit a certain saturation point. Yeah, well, because like like I said, so much of it was just absolutely terrible, and it was constant, right? Like you, you've talked about in the '80s that you couldn't get away from music, like anything that was popular, <laughs> right. you could not avoid listening to it a billion well, times every day. Yeah, and this is I was going to say a second ago. As a kid, I do actually have living memory of this music being popular in the '80s, and it was really pretty divisive, actually, because of course there were your old just tribalism, the kind of the tribalism that yeah, the rockists who were like, "That's not real music." One of the things that it's hard to imagine today if you didn't live through it is how when something was popular or when something was being pushed by the culture machine, the corporations that made that stuff, it was utterly ubiquitous in a way that things I don't think ever will be maybe again. Everywhere you went, you would hear this music. Every record store you went into, it would be playing on radio all the time. It was 
everywhere. And when you would turn on the two channels you could get that had videos on them, it would be it would be a lot of that. Be on yeah. TV, and be so, on the radio, yeah. be playing in your mall. And so even if you just kind of liked it, you really you fatigued of it. And it's a music that because of its repetitive and minimalistic nature. Mm-hmm really graded on a lot of folks and so i remember it actually just really made people mad well they just got sick of it and so they would hate it yeah and i mean and like that's that's fair enough i i've you know but now we're far enough away that i think we can listen there are some there's some there's some good stuff in there and it's like it's it's kind of interesting to hear so so hopefully we'll do that in a bit well you'll separate the wheat from the chafe the chaff yeah. A little bit for us there, because we're what was that? That's thirty years ago. Yeah, yeah. that's long enough to uh, to. Yeah. We got some good perspective now. Yeah, to have let the erosion of time brush away the crap. That's ninety five percent of anything. Yeah, bringing us back to the top of the introduction. See, look, some formal. Uh, I told you this was tightly planned. Yeah. yeah, we got some structure going. So, Anthony, what do you think? You haven't talked at all. You got anything to add to the, the as a coda to the introduction here? I think it'll be interesting to see how we can draw some threads between these different artists and different styles because I've always been a big believer that every form of music is built on the same sort of rules so even if it's a genre you've never listened to and you're not very familiar with there's something you can latch onto it that's familiar to you and we're gonna try the herculean task (laughs) of mapping common ground among Sufjan Stevens Johannes Brahms and early synth pop. And early <laughs> early synth pop. Okay, so that uh, here here endeth the introduction. So if you are down for this weirdo conversation, remember the podcast you're listening to is called Loose Filter for Reasons. It wasn't just a random collection of fun words what, what are that we picked. What? What are the? Re- what, what it was, it's sort of built into the words. I didn't so pick I, mean, it. It, it, I, I, I did stumbled pick it. into this. I, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm, I was the picker of the words. So I think this is our filter at its loosest, and we'll see what we can do. So let's talk about Sufjan Stevens. I mean, if if this were like a commercial setting, I guess we would go to commercial break here, and there would be that nice segue. I'm curious, Dave, how you feel between his more acoustic and stripped-down albums versus his more highly layered electronic albums. Which one you sort of lean more towards? Because... I feel like oh, certain people no. are definitely that's like, more that's, on one uh, side like or the other. That's like asking Ben Cartwright who his favorite son was. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you, they're, they're just equal. <laughs> Speaking of loose filter. <laughs> so yeah, but could you elaborate on your question a little bit so that, uh, Anthony, so that people who are listening who don't know Sufjan. Stevens discography totally. near and dear to their heart yeah. could yeah, understand yeah. what you're about. So what do you mean about? these two sides of so his? So he has albums that are more like Seven Swan or his more recent album, Carrie and Lowell, that are very stripped down and... You know him just sort of playing his acoustic guitar and singing some songs. You some know, piano. I think the, very, very. Simple. There's nothing but like one synth and piano and and guitar mm, yeah. and voices Lots of on space. on Carrie Lowell, and it's even even slimmer on on Seven Swans. So. What's then, a good example of that? What's a track from Carrie and Lowell you've really been chewing over? Uh, so many of them. Um, Fourth of July. Firefly What could I have said To raise you from the dead Or could I Be the sky On the 4th of July Well you do enough talk My little hawk Why do 
cry Tell me what did you learn From the Tillamook burn Or the 4th of July We're all gonna die What I love about it's so uplifting. It, it, well, it's it's so lovely. It's just mm-hmm. it really enfolds you. But what I love about the simpler side of his compositional voice is that song is is pretty straight ahead. I mean, it's it's a it's a lovely song. It's mm-hmm. a it's a, a beautiful song, and clear structure and so forth are all hallmarks of good songwriting. But everything is run through this like, surreal filter. Yeah, no sounds sound real they yeah. all sound ethereal and otherworldly well, and, and, like it starts out with that soundscape in the background yeah it's just i think that's just static. i think that's 100 reverb on a piano so it's just like you're just, yeah, hearing it's just no attacks there. so i think it's it, i think right. it's actually yeah. piano you're though. just in yeah. this like soundscape right mm-hmm. and it's static but then the accompaniment is pulse so it's moving you forward it's like the sibelius effect moving you forward over a static landscape mm-hmm. but but it like it moves you along real gently like he's pushing you along on this cloud you know mm-hmm. and then his voice comes in and it's like listening to you know John Lennon after 66 his voice never it's always altered he hated his voice so you never hear John Lennon's actual voice on any of the recordings it's we're just like we're listening to music from a nearby dimension yeah yeah it's very interesting how he uses production in addition to being such a great songwriter and instrumentalist and composer he's always very smart about how he puts his sounds together on his recordings and he's able to use very sparse material very effectively. Yeah. I think the the production of this album is the on my first listen I didn't really I don't know I, I don't I don't think I paid enough attention to it but uh, well, it's a lot to take in. Yeah, it's a lot to take in. The production on this is, is so absolutely brilliant because most of the time you're talking about like the, the accompanimental sounds are are in that really like really spacey, really big reverb Really, it's he, a big he creates. Space. He very, very deftly creates then, a large yeah, acoustic or sonic sense space. Of space. But yeah. then, yeah. oftentimes yeah. when he when his voice comes in, it's right there. It's like right in your ear, and, an and just a whisper. To and so there's this like huge. Um, it's this intimacy, yeah. but you're in a cathedral or a vast. You're you're plane you're alone or, and close together in a very large space. Yeah. And it's so, it's such a distinctive effect that he does so well, and I don't know that anybody. I mean, I can't think of anybody who does it quite like he does, you know? And I feel like that's something that I find in common with this side of his voice as compared to his much more active and substantially composed yeah. music, like on Age of Odds, most of the tracks from Age of Odds. They, they still have that feeling in common. I think that connects both sides of his personality, that yeah. feeling of just the general feel of his sound world. Like, yeah. even when it's big and busy and eclectic, it has... It's to- all built off of... The song structure, like, when you get down to the core of it, it's always quite simple and straightforward. I think even in his, like, busiest, most complicated stuff, it's, like, it's all kind of built on something... Uh, a very simple heart, I so guess. It's going to feel familiar. Yeah. <clears throat> um, I, I, if you wanted to throw on an Age of Odds track, get a little sample Yeah, so we could hear the other side. I think... Explain what I was I talking think, about. I th- yeah, I think <laughs> while Anthony's pulling that up, that what you mentioned about the soundscape feeling vast, but the voice the, in, in the production, putting the voice right up in your yeah. ear in the sonic space uh, for that feeling of, of intimacy, like he does that so well, so consistently in so many different ways. Yeah. We're going to do an episode on this at some point about just production and like what is it and, and why does it matter. But I think it's important to note that at this stage in music as recorded artifact, that 
composing composition, like the first half is making the song and the sounds and putting them together. The other half is how you want it to appear on the recording. And I almost think that Stevens is a more adept on that side of composition than on what we would consider traditionally like writing the song, putting the instruments on it, and so notes forth. Notes and notes and notes and notes. Exactly. <laughs> Does that make sense? Like, oh, like, yeah, totally. like That's like, what I was kind of getting at in terms of talking about his ability to use production so effectively. Yes. Actually, yes. can we... Can so we... what Anthony said, just with more words on it, was what there I... Was one, there was one other thing that, that really strikes me in the production of Carrie and Lowell, and can we do a quick clip from John, My Beloved? Yeah, definitely. Because I just want to explain, like, there's something that struck me the first time I listened to it, and um, I was like, why is this like this? <laughs> Where is it in the track? Uh, it's, it's, it's actually how his voice is through the entire track. This is John, my beloved. So can we be friends sweetly before the mystery ends? I love you more than the world can come. We just listened to that on a laptop, but if you if you if you have headphones on, the noise. Well, they, they well yeah. We, I'll, well, I'll put the actual. Most of you have headphones on, um, but we. I would didn't. say I would. Say, <laughs> I mean, maybe they might be listening to their car. You know, people. You may say if you listen to it with headphones. Yeah, if and when you listen to it with headphones, you can the 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 noise floor of the track is very high. There's a constant hiss in the background that just makes it sound like it's a tape or something. But then his voice has a noise gate on it where each breath you can hear suddenly just rises out of nowhere. I'm not sure. I, I, I did. He read, does that all the time. That's yeah. Well, like I, that quality to his, his voice on the yeah, recording. But it's, it's so clipped because it's like they've got it's like a really fast noise gate on it. That makes and what does kinda, a noise gate do? A noise so for, gate for, is, is um, it's an effect to use that basically cuts off everything under a certain decibel level. So if there is a hiss in the background or something like that, if you're recording or or there's just like noise, it gates it. So right, so it only lets ha- certain sounds things... have to be at a certain level, right. in order for them to be. Um, and so come if, through. if you set a noise gate on a vocal track, yeah, with a like a quietness threshold, so yeah. things below a certain level don't appear. They get they get eliminated. But um, so like the beginnings of and mm-hmm. ends of what you would well, say, you where set, you would you naturally can set the taper and the would decay be of them. So you can have it so like it really cuts things off sharply or not. And so um, what are you hearing what are you hearing in his voice then? Well since he's he's whispering the track, but at the same time the noise gate set really fast so you can hear it like it's like almost every every line just suddenly comes sharply into being instead of like do you know that at all? Yeah, instead uh, of sounding like he's there singing the song, it's like yeah. his voice keeps appearing. And he's whispering and so quietly that it has to be set, you know, it has to be very sensitive, I guess. Um, well, and again, the, the way he manipulates the space, if you listen to it with headphones on, yeah. it does sound, the voice is like in your ear and so he's once whispering again, and, and, it gives and the that, rest of the music is sort of muffled and it's in the background. Yeah, exactly. And it creates that, that real um, contrast, I guess. And uh, this track, I was like, why is it like that? But I, I read, and now, I, of course, I didn't produce this album. I, it sounds like a noise gate to me, you know? That's, that's your <laughs> This is your my guess. ear. Yeah. But he recorded part of this on an iPhone in like hotels and stuff. He would record his vocal tracks. And so you would have to, that would pick up a lot of noise. Um, so you would but, have to, to clean it, it up. It's, it's almost like to. somebody, but like I said, it creates that 
higher level of intimacy, I think. And it's, that's just a production technique. And I, I think is really, that blew me away with it. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I, first time I listened to it, I was like, why is this so clippy? Uh, <laughs> yeah, Sufjan has done a lot of weird things production-wise. Like the thing that most engineers would talk about is when he recorded Illinois, he only used the Shore M57 mic to record every single instrument, every single voice, everything. He used one microphone. The basic, sure. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah, which is like, you know, one of your simple mics that are good. You know, they're used in the studios, but they're used for specific reasons. Whereas he created a homogenous sound across all the instruments by using this one microphone. And no one would ever really think to do that, but you listen to Illinois, it's considered, you know, one of the greatest albums yeah, last and, year. And it sounds long. live, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it sounds like they're all in the same space, I guess. One thing that I wanted to po- point out that may serve as a useful point of connection when we get to our next composer is that on the the first half of this composition process, we're talking about actually making the sound and putting the instruments on them, that Stevens uses... It's such an, an interesting spectrum of sounds, first of all. It's lots of sounds. He uses lots of sounds. But so many of them are homemade or they sound homemade, and that's you know a deliberate aesthetic choice, and it it's a connection to his folk, the the folk roots of of what he does. But it's also to put it in a larger context that homemade American composer, the American Maverick, that fits in with a long compositional tradition of American composers. You know, all the way like to extremes, people like Harry Parch, who literally was going to junkyards and building his own instruments and making his own scales and tunings mm-hmm. and, you know, yeah, redefining what we even think of as yeah, music literally and doing music it all himself. DIY. Yeah. Like, like he actually, DIY took, or die. he actually <laughs> took Carl Sagan's thing to say that if you make an apple pie from scratch, first create a universe that makes apples, you know. So, but Harry Parch was like, yeah, okay, sure. I'm going to create my own scales and my own tunings and my own instruments, and then I'm going to compose music for it. But he was coming out of a tradition that goes all the way back to Henry Cowell and Charles Ives and even further back to like shape note singing and, you know, all these do-it-ourselves way of making music that everybody has, but in that like quirky, folky, experimental sense that is uniquely American, I think Stephen's music also comes out of that. When I hear what sounds like a thumb piano harp plunking that waltz beat on this on uh john my beloved that we just listened to you know i just i, I it sounds like some instrument he made you know it's gonna bug me we can look it up. <laughs> no that, well no i don't think that's an actually a Kalim- maybe yeah, it nah. is but i don't, I don't, I don't it's think Kalimba. it is no no I, I i feel like i know what it is though. it sounds too it sounds like it's an actually a bigger instrument yeah, yeah exactly it doesn't, it doesn't sound it's like just a, a small it's sort thing. of emulating that that sound was what it made me think of uh, uh, but anyway, uh, after that digression, back to what we were going to listen to, which is uh, one of Stephen's m- more thoroughly composed. Tr- that's not the way to put it. Fully busy, bigger, busier, <laughs> busier, bigger, layered, layered, yeah, yeah. layered. Because I, I feel layered. like it's more layered than complex yeah. in a, a literal sense. Of there's yeah. more there stuff, more, more information, more voices, more voices. Right. So yeah. what are we gonna listen to? We listen to Age of Odds. Yeah, I think that's the, the, best the, example the wall is, of yeah. electronics. And what's fascinating, let me say, as prep for uh, everyone's ears on this example, is how even with all this electronic sound and other instruments, you know, like orchestral instruments that are that find their way in the texture, it still feels real folky and, and homey and homemade. Yeah, this particular track has a has a point that I kind of wanted to make sure we include on the sample but let's just let's, let's just, just listen, listen to it and and let's listen to it all the way through we're, we're not going to listen to it all the way oh through oh my god you guys
It is a great, great track. Yes. Age of Odds. That's a great track. Uh, the reason that I chose that particularly to compare like the s- more pared down with the more built up Sufjan is that when the song finally winds down, it goes back down to just uh, Sufjan and his guitar. It's just singing. him and his guitar. Yeah, it's and back it's home. Like, it always comes back home. And then you listen to it and it's like, that is actually the entire song. Like that. that's, uh, as far as harmonically, that's, the, that's layers, the entire thing. Everything else is back. just built off that. And and sort of what makes it, why I love this particular track so much is, is it's like, uh, as a person who, who I'm, a, I'm an emotional man, as uh, indicated by my pounding on the table when I talk about stuff like this. Um, it's like this whole huge deal is built out of something so tiny, and and it's just all these layers are okay. just built up on. So you just handed us our point of connection to Brahms. You realize, right? Yeah, because that's exactly what Brahms does. Well, that's what I'm here for, bro. But but before we move on to the uh, uh, the glory of Brahms, the glory of Brahms. <laughs> uh, that's a Peter Cetera song. I. Right? <laughs> <laughs> we did it all. <laughs> For the glory of Brahms. <laughs> oh, oh, that's a terrible joke. And a terrible song. And a terrible song, yeah. That really I, I love just because oh. I've heard it a billion times. Speaking of the Reminds 80s. Me of the dentist office. See, when something terrible like that would be huge, it was just, it, you just got hit in the face with it like 17 times a day. I love in Adventureland, they made a good joke about that. Rock Me Amadeus is oh. playing throughout the whole movie, oh. and at a certain point, there's like, I'm going to kill myself. I hear this song one more time. <laughs> That's how we all felt when it was popular. Um, I'm a day, I'm a well, no, no, obviously not all of us. Obviously, some of us. There's millions were like, of people yeah, who paid money play for it, it again. Some of us are Falco fans. All right. <laughs> I like to, not me in Dave's particular. Personally insulted <laughs> on behalf of. So any Falco fans cut down in his prime. We don't mean. We don't mean to demean Rock Me Amadeus. We do mean to demean the amount of times we had to hear it. I agree. Totally, and have the same sense that you do is that that that's what makes. But I think in, in any music, that's a hallmark of really terrific composition. Is that if if you create something that is huge and is a complex texture that has an a lot economy going of on, means, if you will. Yeah, if you don't have an economy of means, if you're making up that complicated texture out of a lot of material, at some point it just tips over into like cacophony. I mean, it, it doesn't make sense. And to sooner most listeners. than you think. Yeah, yeah, sooner <laughs> yeah. than you think. And because he is so intelligent in his decisions and his construction of these large textures, that it works like it starts off with this huge, you know, electroacoustic texture mm-hmm. and, you know, with the these trombones blasting, flutes trilling, all this stuff. And it reminds me, I, big electronic. This is just beats, a personal thing, you know. but I have this, I have sleep paralysis. So, so sometimes when I'm falling asleep, if I sleep on my back, particularly if I'm napping during the, the day, I, I can't move my body or control my breathing, and then the blood rushing through my ears makes this giant sound because 
you know, I'm if you halfway. get quiet enough, you hear it. Yeah, yeah, sure. Well, I'm halfway between, but and then it gets louder and louder. And I always imagined this giant machine, like the Borg cube, was like right next to my ear, making a ton of noise. And that's what the beginning of this track always reminds me of. <laughs> I think thousands of listeners just thought, "You too." That's just like sleep paralysis. That's oh, yeah. me too. Sleep paralysis. That's how I think of Age of Odds. Oh, wait, I, I thought hate we were talking it about so Age of much. Okay. Sleep paralysis notwithstanding. That's why the the real, like, looking objectively at the amount of textures that are in Age of Odds, like, the song shouldn't make any sense. It shouldn't just be this hodgepodge of, of you know, because from verse to verse, he changes the sonic palette mm-hmm. so radically and in so many different ways. But again, because it's, it's built it's on the bars. song yeah. and it's built on a well-composed mm-hmm. song, it, it all works. And, and even if you don't, if you aren't able to parse it that way, and even if you're not thinking, oh my gosh, this is all built on just, you know. You feel the continuity. You feel the continuity. Mm-hmm. You intuit yep. that this all makes sense because when you hear it, you can kind of hear it all. You can take it all in and you're not confused by all of the sound, right? And yeah. I think that that's, to spin out that point of connection, one of the things that I best love about big orchestral textures that are done really well, like in Brahms' symphonies, you can sense that it is pulled out of a really simple idea even though it gets really complicated and big and long yeah <laughs> so problems there's a joke to. there's a joke to be put in there but so yeah i guess we're cadencing on sufjan Stevens. yeah i was gonna say speaking of eight bars come, making some making crazy so, huge thing let's so listen brahms to brahms four. four yeah brahms four would be the obvious example that comes to mind if you know that music but uh sufjan stevens if you don't uh we were listening to tracks from the albums uh his two most recent albums Carrie and Lowell, his most recent, and uh, Age of Oz. Which provide the perfect contrast between what he's capable among, of doing. Among his very best work. And me and Lissette are going to see him on October 24th in San Bernardino. It's going to be awesome. Jealous. Uh, uh, this yeah, is, you are. I, I think his, his last two albums are among his best work, so I think he's still in a very interesting and fertile creative period of production. So if you are not hip to him at all, we recommend him. And if you are, then you've probably just nodded your head a lot during this conversation. Yeah. All right. So Johannes Brahms. Let's hit him with some Brahms. Let's hit him with some Brahms. Um, we, like, we don't really talk about him. As a, I mean, really, you can just look him up on Wikipedia, I guess, <laughs> if you want to know a lot about him. But he, he wrote four symphonies. And one thing that is... I think important to note about Brahms, and I always, I don't know, maybe if I get to meet Sufjan, I'll get this sense, but I get the sense that, that Sufjan is a very... A Brahmsian? No, that he's a probably a quiet, understated person. and Most likely. You know, right? And probably uh, values some distance from his persona, his well-knownness. And, and Brahms certainly throughout his life struggled with that because... He was sort of plucked out of obscurity as a teenager by Robert and Clara Schumann and Harold is, you know, the new Beethoven and uh, which no is pressure. Why, yeah, no pressure. Right. And Beethoven at the time being, you know, the Beatles, I mean, being the gold standard of anything musical in that culture. And so didn't write a symphony until he was in his 40s, until he was in early middle age and you know, it was a lot of composers talked about hearing the footsteps of that particular giant behind him. But the reason I say all this is to say that his four symphonies are the product of like a mature person, like a yeah. person who has lived, who has lost, who has thought about things a lot. And he really does, as a result, 
there's nothing in his music that doesn't belong there, that isn't organically grown from these little seeds that he places right at the start. Yeah. Dave's mocking the little gesture I made. I gesticulated when I said these little seeds. Tiny seeds. Look, you know, I'm from the South. You know, if we don't use our hands, we, you know, how do you make a Southerner shut up and sit on their hands? If you don't know that joke. Oh, those Italians. I think Italians, too. I think coastal peoples who are very kind of, you know, lively personalities tend to be uh, talk with their hands. But anyway, um, that, that to me is a connection. I, I always find it fascinating what sense of the person I, at least I think I can draw from their music and um, how, like, like what you learn about them as a person, how that connects to how you see that expressed as musical ideas. Because music is a feeling art. And uh, I think the way that anyone who is creating music like feels about the world they live in, about themselves, about anything is going to come out in their composition in some way if they're at all good at composing, at, at translating their inner selves into sound. Mm-hmm. Coming up with those different ideas and synthesizing them in a way that makes it musical. Yeah, exactly. And if you're really, really, really good at it, your music is totally unique because, you know, even though we're all people and we're a lot more similar than different, everybody's universe inside their head, their lived experience is unique, mm-hmm. completely unique Only to them. you've listened to the music you've listened to, play the music you've played in right. that specific order and sequence. Exactly. And so I think that's a connection I feel uh, between these two composers also, is that their, their music is highly personal mm-hmm. and that the way their craft works, that they take a, a simple, direct idea and spin it out. And that was important to craft for Yeah, you, you <laughs> couldn't resist it. Was that a segue here? <laughs> We're not even going to listen to Brahms. We're just going to jump to synth pop. Yeah, I think both Sufjan and Brahms definitely, as composers, have a confidence to their choices and to how their pieces are built on the macro scale and on the micro scale because there's just everything sounds right all the time in their music. It's a very strange thing. It's like it could every be little, no other choice. Yeah, every little choice they make is just like, it seems so perfect. Especially with Sufjan, you go back and listen to like, he has four versions of Chicago and you're like, no, he, he knew exactly which one to put on the album. You know, <laughs> you know, the other versions are all great. There's that one version that's But they like, don't all quite, everything yeah. just works. So Brahms 4, we're going to use his fourth symphony. Well, I was just thinking oh. like, like yeah. the last movement of Brahms 4 would be great. That would be comparing to, 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 to Age of Odds. Uh, there's there's some similarities there if you're willing to stretch a little bit. Yeah, or uh, the first movement with that you know sixth, the descending ascending interval that starts it all, and you can hear how it's all sort of weaves out of that. Well, team. I mean, really, all of our listeners should listen to all of Brahms four because it's like it's yeah, it's my favorite symphony probably. Okay, so so you mean your favorite symphony of all symphonies? Of his, definitely, but I think of his, yeah, for me also. But is my I mean, favorite. like. That are really traditionally symphonies, possibly. Yeah, could be. It's it's up there. It's, it's up, it was the first one that I was like, because I, I you know I went to music school and I I wasn't really you study the things I you learned. Like, these, these are things, interesting. But like but when yes. I, when when I had to listen to Brahms four for one of your classes, Stuart, uh, and I was like, man, I had the same experience. Oh, <laughs> this is what I wanted. The whole time, this is I've listened to all these other things, and this is this is this is the one. <laughs> this is the one. Yeah, well, I mean, when you listen to music that gets it right, you like you know it, even as if you have like, no idea why. Things you just, that are you older, know like yeah. uh, you know, like like pre pre twentieth century stuff, like or you know, uh, pre twentieth century. Yeah, I was gonna say like I, this would be this would be a fun little uh, two minute tangent. But what are your favorite handful of symphonies? You know, mm-hmm. uh, I would I would put I would put Brahms four on that list. I would have to put. Uh, I usually avoid Beethoven nine because it's 
it's barely a symphony number one, but number two, it's such an obvious choice. Yeah, uh, it's sort of the so much the summation of what that can it's be. It's like being a fan about. of the Yankees. Yeah, it's just like such an easy choice. The Godfather is my favorite film, so I'd really have to go with because of its place in time and when the idea hit would be the Eroica would be Beethoven three would be my Beethoven pick. I love uh, Berlioz Symphony Fantastique. Talk yeah, about but the, is, in is the that, shadow is of that a, is oh, that's a, a symphony. Sim- yeah, eh. that's a symphony. That's a symphony. It's through composed, but a symphony is really literally just a collection of sounds. I think that that what defines it more than anything, what defines a classical symphony is a certain set of formal structures. Mm-hmm. But I think by the time we get post-Beethoven, literally with Berlioz, 1830, 1831, your post, a symphony is a descriptive term, not a prescriptive one. Is what I, is what I'm saying. So I, I think that like Harmony Lara Adams would be on my all time list of yeah, and I just, I don't feel like it's a symphony. Um, oh, I think it is absolutely. But yeah. we'll say we'll but, have this argument. But who really cares? <laughs> who really cares? <laughs> Certainly not all the listeners who just pressed skip. Uh, <laughs> uh, God, they're talking about symphonies again. Oh no. Yeah. KSL <laughs> music. I don't but really, listen to this one because you'll probably like it. <laughs> right. So having said all that. I think let's play let's listen to a little bit of the first movement first. Okay. Because we've been chewing on that idea of spinning out a texture from a little idea. So this one's really easy. This is to a hear, very tiny idea. Yeah, it's a very tiny idea. It's two notes. It's one descending interval of a sixth that he turns around and then plays up. So you get you get four notes, right? Basically right at the beginning. And then if you listen, every measure has two beats in it and every eight bars you're going to hear something new added to that idea of just that beat um bottom that keeps going and, and and being handed around and over the first like 90 seconds that little cell is just evolves into this really gloriously uh, kaleidoscopic orchestral texture that it's pretty easy to follow if you catch just that opening idea and hang your ears on that you can hear it and you go through that first movement and it's all spun out of that first thing you know and he does the same thing in the last movement which i love you get the eight measure chord progression that just repeats over and over yeah. and over and yeah. over and over that's one i was thinking of that, that, that age of odds is like has that skeletal similarity to yeah so if we listen to a little bit of the fourth movement, it has that uh, similar kind of structure to, to Age of Odds in that you're going to hear eight chords 
the winds are going to play eight eight chords and with nothing else, just harmonies. And then for the rest of the movement, almost without interruption, you're just going to hear those eight chords over and over and over and over again in a in a consistent cycle. And Brahms just changes completely the music he writes using those eight chords. Even though you may not know that, and each successive variation sounds more and more different and dissimilar, because on some level you are perceiving that it's repeated material, that it's the same thing, it all, it all really makes sense. It lets a large a texture that becomes really complicated stay easy to listen to. simple gesture you hear a little bit of the variation there but later on in the movement it turns into this kind of crazy complexity know Brahms then you're you know smiling and, and nodding and if you don't know Brahms then I highly recommend the fourth symphony it's really really good and and really the the, the piano pieces like opus 118 oh absolutely the late the late yeah. piano pieces 100 percent 118 119 and 120 all the way 118 especially opus yeah 118, 118 is, is, a, oh. is is a great set of little piano pieces I also should say the music that we just listened to was the version conducted by John Elliott Gardner with the Orchestre Revolutionaire Romantique, his own period instrument orchestra that he started a number of years ago. And they released a cycle of the Brahms Symphony recordings over the last few years that are really astonishing. And if you don't know that repertoire, they're great recordings to get. And if you do know that repertoire, you should get them anyway because you've never heard them played quite And that's one of the things that, that, as someone who started musically not in the classical world and then started studying classical music, I find gets a lot of people not or it makes it hard for them to get into classical music is not knowing what recordings to listen to because there's these pieces that everyone talks about and says are amazing and then you look it up and there's like you know 10 different conductors and orchestras playing them. or a hundred <laughs> yeah exactly yeah. right and some of and they range from horrible to mm-hmm. phenomenal and so the great thing about Gardner is that you know when you're listening to whatever he's doing 
it's the most thoroughly researched version. Oh, he's an exceptional In scholar, terms of just yeah. like, this is what the composer wanted it to sound like. This is how it would have sounded in his day. And this is how you want to understand the music. Uh, on, on Amazon, the garden recordings are worth listening to. There are also a number of other ones that are good. Those are just my favorite. He just, he just wants more vibrato. Uh, I like the, the cycle that Simon to. Rattle did, too. Uh, I think with Vienna it was. Anyway, um, our third leg of Inside Dave's Brain episode is synth pop. Now, now let me Now, let me I don't explain. know. I'm still casting about. I'm a little worried that we may not be able to stick the landing on our improvised oh, I've been uh, holding episode back structure on... because because I, I I'm fascinated to know what connections we can find. I feel like we tied Brahms and, and Sufjan together. Like real, I'm kind of impressed at us. It, it was like we planned it, but well, there was actually a tie that ma- that makes me love it that I was holding back on so I could connect it to what I'm going to talk about for the dramatic about. reveal. Yes, this guy, unbelievable. Well, I figured, I was like, well, I can't Such mention restraint. it twice. That's Such stupid. Restraint. Um, but anyway, so uh, how I got into synth pop. <laughs> no one smart ever says something twice. <laughs> I'm 32, and for some reason, like, I've been spending last, uh, I don't know, two years uh, listening to a lot of, of early synth pop. Because it's you're, you're, you, you can see middle age over the rise there, and you're, you're exploring your roots? No, I'm just, expo- this, I'm just saying, a, like, why am I into baby? this music from, like, Right before I was born and right around the time I was born, like, why did I get into this? And it kind of came about because, like, I heard Age of Odds, actually, and I was like, well, actually, uh, Mason Bates came to our school, and and he did this long talk about electronic music, and I was like, oh, man, this was super cool. So I started listening to a lot of, you know, the, the, like, and I was like, super cool. You gotta start. Yeah, no, it was great. It was was fantastic. Like, it was really stellar. But like I, I, so I was like, okay, well, I got to start with where, with the roots. So I started listening to like the early kraut rock bands, you know, like and kraut, so you kraut- just started because he did. Okay, so we should it's a little bit of background. He did a, a lecture for the campus that was uh, basically a big genre tree of electronica. Mm-hmm. And he had this whole graphic, and he had his turntables and mixing rigs set up, so he'd play examples as he was talking. So this inspired you to what reverse engineer the music that you love? Well, no, I just was like, okay, well, I got to learn about this, and so I kind of started like in in the roots of of early electronic music. And if you want to uh, avoid like, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of like classical. I'm doing air quotes. Um, <laughs> early electronic music. Yeah, so when electronic music started, it was basically mathematicians who yeah. created computers who hired classical composers well, well, to make about sounds. Computer, but but yeah. Well, um, <laughs> Call, like they're, going they're, back to the fifties, they had computers. It's not what we think it was computers, <laughs> uh, but but like oscillator, like analog instruments. Um, th- those have been around for some time. I, I think the first, the earliest, really you could call synthesizers is a note chord. But let's not get into that because we know how deep that rabbit hole is. We did this was we talked yeah. about this in our um, technology. But anyway, episode. so I was like, I, I got to learn about this because this is very interesting. And so I, I started listening to, it, and I, and then I I kind of like diverged from that. But I was I was like. Okay, I listened to a lot of Kraftwerk and, and a lot of the kraut rock bands from the early stuff, and and then uh, you know various electronic dance genres that come out of that. But uh, I never really. I, then I, I went right. That doesn't happen like until the nineties, right? So no. Well, you don't really no. get electro late eighties. Well, electro, but see, I think of electro as hip hop, proto hip hop, not. It's electronic music. It's well, made with disco was essentially proto hip hop yeah. in a lot of ways. Yeah, <laughs> true, true. Well, no, I was thinking that like you don't get like Detroit techno until the late eighties, early nineties, right? 
late '80s. But so there's if you ignore synth pop, there's a there's a gap. There's a gap in your history. Is what I'm getting after. There's a gap in the history of the progression of of electronics from experimental laboratory stuff to musical yeah. instruments and musical culture. But I'd culture. always kind of viewed, and I mean, I got into Talking Heads uh, hugely. It's like. And why? Bands. Why is that? Why is there that gap? Why is there so much hate for? We were talking. We were laughing before we started recording, right? You said that. Uh, well, actually, if if you don't mind me diverging a little bit, and and, and what I never I see we as never the, have digressions the story on this podcast. of never, um, of, of synth pop was that synth pop actually hit the United States mostly because of MTV, and the reason is that primarily the bands that were producing synth pop at the time, like American pop, pop uh, like rock music was was like hair bands at that time and you know yeah. <laughs> you know like i mean those guys were really good at that but like they were good at a thing that is not really that appealing in retrospect okay but the uh they they didn't make music videos and music videos have been made for like the bbc for a long time in europe so yeah, technically the beatles made music yeah videos. exactly and so so all these like when when mtv started they're like they well, needed content they needed content and so they're like well all these weirdos have videos they made already you know the hair bands in the early and mid 80s were playing clubs in la yeah i mean they were they, they came out of clubs mm-hmm. and so the the what the rock music that came to dominate the late 80s was those guys were were, yeah. were not making videos for sure yeah. yeah, and so and so MTV needed they were material. you weren't a real rock band if you didn't come out of the club. So they they saw from the beginning these European groups that made videos and had those kind of media images and had more media product around what they did as inauthentic. Like yeah. it was built in because in the American rock scene if you weren't coming out of clubs you weren't for real even though you were wearing pink spandex and lingerie and full makeup and your Ain't hair nothing realer than that, I mean, bro. Yeah, I, I, you know, what's such an odd... <laughs> Thank the New York Dolls for that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but anyway... Nice reference. Ooh, yeah. Impressive. Campolo. <laughs> shoots and scores. <laughs> anyway, so that's kind of how Synthpop got here. And then it, it was sort of like we didn't have any critical... We didn't have any way of parsing out what was good and what was bad. I, I I feel like it as far as what was like you know because it's just we, all out there. No, it was not like, like, like today. <laughs> no, I I mean honestly, no, we have Pandora like, to tell us what to listen to. <laughs> we have algorithms that make those decisions. So uh, so yeah, there was a lot. Of, so it was like sort of a new genre that hit fully formed when it hit United States shores. Cause right, because like, like, it had been it had already been around. Right, right, because you know Germany and England are kind of close to each other, so they've been like kind of talking to each other. But we had been just like I don't know, meow, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Shredding our, on the guitar, woos over here, <laughs> not our bleep bloops. Yeah, pretty much, pretty much. Um, so. American music was all weedly woo, <laughs> and European music was all bleep Yeah, and 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 guess who was right about the future? Yeah, but anyways, but they had to go through a very painful, shallow stage, which is where I think a lot of the criticism of synth pop is fair. Yeah, and yeah. I make this comparison a lot that music in the 80s, it's because a lot of synthesizers were still new and producers were kind of wrapping their brains around it. It's a little bit like CGI is now with 90s movies. It's this cool new technology that everyone wanted to throw into their products, but we're kind of figuring out on the fly. They had to use it for yeah. a while to know yeah. how to use it. So it doesn't always it. turn out as 
perfectly as it could have with the material they had at the time. You're always going to overuse it and over-rely on it, mm-hmm. right? Because and then it timestamps it. And so my it, belief is that what happened to Synthpop that really made it just like suddenly fall out of favor completely is the Yamaha DX7. And I'm not going to get too technical here, but what happened was that Yamaha made the synthesizer that was digital, which was, you know, a revolution, and you could make all kinds of crazy sounds with it, but it was so hard. I mean, you you get a hold of an analog synthesizer, it's like you move the knobs and it sounds like this, and so it's like it's, you can kind of figure out by feel. So the DX7 how to make was noises. the first uh, like commercial, like uh, consumer level or whatever, not consumer, but um, uh, you know, under ten thousand dollar digital synthesizer. Digital synthesizer, yeah, and so exactly. because the way that digital synthesizers make sound is so abstract, everybody was bad at using them. Well, it, the way they that only used the system this sounds. One made sounds because like i mean is that what you're getting after i'm just bear with me for a minute so an analog synthesizer uses really harmonically complex waves that have a lot of overtones and then filters that you filter those noise those out with it and you can shape your sound okay a and it's intuitive because you're turning knobs exactly and you you can hear how it sounds and you assign it to an envelope and then you can like oh you just you move the knobs because they're all synthesizer based music electronic music up until that point which was what 80 Two, three, whenever uh, the DX7 I think the DX7 comes out in 83, but it becomes like so everywhere a little think bit later. it was more interesting, like our Kraftwerk and so forth, was more interesting because they were able to... Bands were... But basically what happened they were was, using, was that when the DX7 came out, no one knew how to program it except for professional DX7 pro. Like, people actually sold patches. Like, that's, that's anathema now, but people sold patches for the DX7 for people to use because it was so hard to use. So what you end up hearing in the late 80s is these same noises that were the presets on the synthesizer over and over, over and, and over and over and over and over and over and over again. It's like if everything everyone was using GarageBand loops to make all their songs. Exactly. <laughs> right. It was just this one timbre. And I think that that, that killed synthpop because you couldn't really make new, like, because it, it, it broke what was... Instead of these like really sort of naive bands that came out of the punk movement, because like it really comes, it's it's post punk is 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 the early synth pop. They didn't know how to how to operate these machines, and like so consequently, all their music sounds really the same. And I think that's and actually when you're hearing it, it all the time, exactly. It really and so you're like, oh, it's that same DX7 piano again. Okay, playing chords that are just playing all pulses. Right. Thanks. Okay, you know, so is it worth considering too? The fact that because these acts gained an audience, certainly in the U.S. because of MTV, that because they were the first groups of musicians, popular musicians, who had to deal with image and that side of it being so upfront in their product, and so they I, I, I don't know. had more complex costumes, they had a more complex sense of their characters they're you know on so stage the combination personas. of yeah definitely the mtv thing and also just coming off of the 70s with david bowie and oh that's true genesis that's the true. whole theatrical rock thing so i think that definitely existed before but mtv enhanced it to a much greater extent because you could directly see the faces of your musicians now the people you're listening to and that's how you get milli vanilli happens yeah. <laughs> well and the the theatrical aspect flies directly against the you know supposed ethos of american rock which is authenticity authenticity mm-hmm. right no theatrics so it didn't sit well with uh a lot of folks but was ubiquitous nonetheless yeah my my personal stupid little theory is that 
the DX7 killed synthpop just because of being so hard to program, and yeah, it, it killed that whole movement. But anyway, so having said that, having said that, that's the story of how synthpop got into America and how it. Now that made we talked for ten minutes about why you shouldn't like synthpop. Can we can we talk about why is it in your top three? Why why did it make the uh, uh, what's good about it? I, I, why is it worth listening let me, to? Let me uh, <laughs> advocate for synth pop. Okay, it was people using these new sounds in a traditional way. I guess it comes from the same kind of if rock comes from folk roots, which I think it does to a certain extent. This comes out of a similar thing, but it's it's using these new tools in a very way in a um, to make a similar sort of thing, but also, uh, I guess the appeal for me is a certain amount of naivety mixed with a certain amount of awareness of what they're doing that makes it hugely appealing to me. But also, it's just for me, it's it's a part of music history that was dark to me. It was like I knew about seventies music, I knew about sixties music, but suddenly there's this like big area where a bunch of stuff was happening that I know nothing about that I that really got me into it. Yeah, it's an era that is to some people a little more obscure because. Everyone knows most of the popular 80s bands mm-hmm. that, you know, did that stuff. But then if you go a level deeper, where did their stuff come from? And that's what gets a lot of people hooked is then they're like, this is a lot of weird, crazy experimental stuff. There are all these weird sounds. And it's like, whoa. Yeah. Right. I, yeah. You do lose the thread in the 80s because so many people, when they think about 80s music, they'll think about like Journey or like Arena Rock. Yeah. you know kind of bands which is which is great i mean that's fun music and and it means certainly to the people who grew up with it it means a lot but they weren't journeys not like their songs aren't engaged in this dialogue of ideas or pushing the envelope of the means of sound no, production the wheel in the sky just keeps on turning or, yeah they're just they're just kind of you know playing songs for folks and so the stuff that is most notable is not a part of this uh, stream of musical, continual generational musical creation that we like to follow, that certainly is a theme of this podcast, that we love to reach out and grab and and find. But that doesn't mean it's not there. It just means that, for whatever reason, this is a decade that goes kind of dark in most narratives. I think Uh, that a lot of people reacted heavily against the synth pop. We talked about this a little bit at the beginning, but... There's when I pulled it up this in the Pop Wikipedia page, I thought it was really funny. They talked about this how it received a lot of criticisms because people thought it was like soulless and emotionless because it's just you know computers. Oh no, computers are making our music, and they weren't even using computers yet. That's the thing. Yeah, and so certain artists actually said they had to speak out against detractors who believe that the synthesizers themselves were literally composing and playing the songs. So they like had this machine that they would just go, all right. Boop, music button, and it's like, out comes Prince. <laughs> it reminds you of how, limit, how limited the popular understanding of new technologies is. Like, when you go back and look at the videos from the mid-90s, what is the internet? You know, these news spots that they would it's a, it's do. a series on, of tubes, yeah, right? Right. It's, it's a series, and it can get clogged. It hurts uh, you, and it goes beep, and then Sandra Bullock <laughs> has to fight it. <laughs> right. Or you look at the movies from the late 90s that involved, you know, the internet. There's there's lots of rollerblading involved. Just, I know there's, that. There's lots like, of rollerblading. There's like 10%, this is what this technology can do, and 90%, it's magic! And, and it seems like this reaction that, you know, the synthesizers are right in the music forum is just... Like, I don't understand this machine. It must be magical. <laughs> I'm scared I, of it. <laughs> yeah, I'm scared of it. It's not like I've always, this always drives me. I, I laugh, so I keep from crying, I guess I should say, that so many people will, professionals and amateurs and scholars and, and morons alike, will 
prejudge a creative work because of its means. Like, if I say I'm making a sculpture out of trash, you say, well, that's horrible. It can't be any good because you're making it out of trash. It's so funny because we were talking about, I was saying Film Crit Hulk before we were talking about him. He um, was just talking about Rick and Morty and how it's like one of the smartest, most interesting shows on TV and how there's just so many people who can't get over the fact that cartoons can be smart. <laughs> right. How can you possibly make even a cartoon that's for adults, let alone one mm-hmm. that's smart and provocative and, and philosophically you know, unusual and, and like Rick and Morty is. And there are a lot of people who think that even if you're making popular music, it can't be substantial. And then Mm -hmm. within that you chop it down further. If you're using a synthesizer, it can't be heartfelt. It's a machine. And so music, right. And of course I always go, well, what, what do you think like a violin is? I mean, it's like (laughs) any instrumentism, anything past singing is technology to create. You're using a machine to like, you're using technology to make music. And so it is, frustrating to me when things are rejected just because of their means out of hand. And I certainly remember that happening in the eighties, man, there was like, you know, you were in one tribe or the other and that determined your social calendar to a great degree. And when you find people and what kind of eyeshadow you'd be wearing. And when you find people who can appreciate both the acoustic music making, the electronic music making, you get musicians like Sufjan Stevens. Yeah. Yes. Oh, he may have made a connection there for us on early synthpop. So let's listen to some of this. We haven't. We've been. We've okay. Been well, I was going to say, it. man. I like. I, I. There's so many bands to talk about in 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 this genre. So which do you think is the most important that people should listen to? <sighs> so much. So we have a very short three hour. I was going to say excerpt for you. I was going to say <laughs> that, like, just a very brief introduction to submitting. There is a band that everybody has a very negative image of. I think in the United States mm-hmm. that is like one. I know of, who you're going to say. I know who you're going to say. You know who I'm going to say. Limp Bizkit. No. <laughs> 311. So many more syllables than that. It is Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark. Oh, um, that's not who I thought you were going to say. Oh, who, who, who you are think? you thinking? Pet Shop Boys. Pet Shop Boys are significant. We should probably... They're still to making new There's, music. Yeah, There's no, there are um, no past tense Pet Shop Boys. Well, I mean, but like in this time period yeah, that we're yeah. referring to. But uh, this, this group is very much a past tense group. Uh, well, no, actually, they had an album. I'm I remember, I'm I sorry, remember guys. as a kid seeing an OMD, as they were referred to, yes. orchestral maneuvers. Those, those and of us in the, the dark. They had the weirdo <laughs> British spelling, maneuvers. Yeah. Maneuvers. Maneuvers in the dark. In the dark. As a kid, yeah, there it is on the manoeuvres. No, it's French. It's like an egg. They put egg in the middle of manoeuvres. They almost have all of the The vowels vowels in a row. (laughs) They just need an I in there. Yeah, Manoeuvres. They were artists, you guys. So I remember seeing the videos and seeing the artist name, Orchestral Manoeuvres in the... What is this strange and exotic European music? And then you hear, if you leave... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Which is the song every American knows as the one OMD song, I but mean, it's... When I've YouTubed them, that was the first Of course result. it is. Of course it is. But, but that's not... You were getting a deep cut. <laughs> they were a different band at one point, and uh, like, there was a... They had a big... Ar- like Money they, ruins everything. <laughs> it was a big argument with their, with their record company was like, do you guys want to be ABBA or do you want to be Can? You know, and and they're like, we want to be both. What a great binary. Yeah, and they're like, we want to be Abba and Stockhausen. Abba and Stockhausen. Yeah, and and that's and so like if I see that show, when you listen to the early stuff, you're like, how did they turn in this like sort of cheesy new romantic group? And and, and they're always they're always pop. They're always okay. So let's hear what are you what are we gonna let's listen to? You're defending them way before we have any. Let's start with their their first single, Anola Gay. 
And this is a great example of synth, synth pop. And there's going to be some cheese. Just deal with it. hard time convincing me on this i gotta say because i admit i carry the cultural baggage of having lived through it that's okay it's not still hits me as just flat like there's like what are you hearing that's really grabbing your musical interest oh well anthony liked the cr78 the little but it's more it's not so much um like are you loving it as a synthesizer nerd or are you loving it as a listener it's poppy, man. It's this is like ABBA. Okay? I, I just I feel like if you've got the okay, so if you're if you're using electronic instruments and you've got the regularity of beat, which is just you know a drum machine doing doom doom, and then you've got the really basic synth patterns, which at the time didn't sound quite as basic as they do now because the sounds were so new that the colors kind of the material could be really much more simple than it was fresh. So yeah. people were hearing these new sounds. It was, like, it was about the sounds themselves and less it was through repetition. Exactly. that we Became so bored with the sound. But, but if that repeats as is the nature of electronic and sequenced music, then I would expect the vocal line to be something particularly interesting. And I feel like the singer comes in and he just drones on this line. That's barely even. So there's like not nothing. How it goes. There. <laughs> <laughs> that ain't the song, man. There's you know what I'm far saying. Far more notes than that. <laughs> but I'm waiting for the thing that's like super interesting. To happen. No, I it's not. Like it I, I like, like I said, it's. I, Am I Anthony? Where are you on this? I'm a little bit in the middle between you two because I can I can appreciate it and I can think of certain artists that do that sound that I really enjoy because to me it sounds a lot like New Order. And but I can see why a lot of people have a problem with it because it's so one level the whole time. There's really is, this isn't a song that tells a narrative in terms of, you know going up and down, having you know dynamics right. that sort of stuff. Like it's just it's kind of like a wall sound that just happens. And that's what a lot of pop music is like, you know, especially today. The whole you know loud, like, loudness war. It's not my absolute favorite OMD song, but it was their first single. And, I, and what year was this, it? This is 1980. Okay, so th- it is early. Okay, so yeah. I, I will so, give it So that. they're still on the floor. So they're still, and they're still working and, stuff and, out. And so, you, okay. uh, Anthony, you said th- this reminded you of New Order, mm-hmm. whereas I see this as so different from New Order in that New Order evolves out, out of punk, um, and it's, it's like it's like post-punk, yeah, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and this is something that's not, I wouldn't call it that, because there were a lot of bands that were heavily using the synthesizers that were evolving out of the punk uh, movement mm-hmm. that like like Ultravox, uh, Joy Division slash New Order, yeah, PIL, um, yeah. yeah, 
that that was happening. But this was actually this is this is more straight ahead pop confused with that like German kraut rock. Which, so it's it doesn't have that same kind of I guess it's 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 a different feel and it's more danceable, um, much more dance oriented than than I would consider uh, New Order to be. I just see them as as coming from a very different place. The other thing about this particular track is that, like, <laughs> just like one of the great synth hooks of all time. Like, that really is. It's it's good, like everybody knows how to play that on the synth because it's just like it's it's one of them, and it's it's hook based. And what I think is it, that it's like a good example of of uh, OMD and early OMD is like, what's the song about? No, <laughs> it's idea. about the bombing of Hiroshima. Like most, <laughs> right? <laughs> okay. okay. So, and, and if you listen, and and the lyrics are actually pretty pretty damn well constructed for a pop song and that's what it is yeah. don't don't expect anything more out of it this no, is a pop no song. i'm not no I, yeah. I, i'm not that's why i don't totally i'm not comparing it. it to the Brahms symphony we just yeah. listened to i'm taking it in its own uh, idiom for sure um so but, give me give us another example give us more to, to chew on here see if they have sea land on there I will say that one thing I think that made this a hard sell for a lot of Americans is that it does happen in slow motion. And so, you know, it's not like nice and tight like songs we were used to coming out of the rock and roll tradition. Got them down by three minutes, yeah. three and a half minutes, or however long you had on one side of a 45. Well, really. there's other pop, more pop oriented uh, tracks on this album, but this is one of my favorites on this album. Yeah, yeah. No, that that one I can okay, I can see I can see. I guess for me what sells me on, on this is that the marriage of sort of simple bubblegummy European pop with what Kraftwerk was doing. I co- I don't think you could say that like any of those Krautrock bads were good songwriters. They weren't good at making well, a pop. They song were hardly even trying to write songs. Exactly. They were just like we have these weirdo tools that we can make all these sounds with. Let's just string a whole bunch of them together in the most interesting fashion we can think of. Or they're like long jam band kind of musicians. This like- band um at at their time actually did a really good job of marrying those two traditions and that's why I'm such a big fan of OMD. And I understand mm-hmm. it's not not for everybody. So you do as much like you listen like historical listening as yeah. much as just like I enjoy listening to it. Although I I have to say that like this historically aware. This does make me feel a certain way and I I do have a, a connection to it. This song's actually on the song's like about a military base, you know, in in yeah. North England like their songs tend to be about historical especially in their early stuff. Like their later stuff is all new romantic like if you leave and it's not really anything particularly special. No offense, guys, if you're listening, but 
<laughs> not not particularly special, but the songwriting I really enjoy about it's it, like about there's two songs about Joan of Arc on this album. You know, uh, they got really obsessed with Joan of Arc and <laughs> wrote wrote pop songs about her, and so I, I just enjoy hearing the like this early marrying of these this like really out there sort of jam band slash Stockhausen tradition with dance pop. I, and it's so uh, historically, I feel like it has a certain significance, and I enjoy listening to it. Yeah, I've always really enjoyed any artist that can pull together the most highbrow and lowbrow kind of entertainments and different things and take a more pop sort of context, but use weirdo influences and mm-hmm. more avant garde stuff and sort of add different flavors to it because that's when you get the most interesting stuff, I think. And certainly, I just enjoy listening to the sounds that are being made on, on much simpler. Uh, early electronic music. I mean, like the electronic instruments you have now, you have a computer, you can make almost any right. sound. Literally infinite. <laughs> and, and what you just said, Anthony, that there's our connection, right? Mm-hmm. Taking taking a uh, simple simple things and complicated things and putting them together in a very accessible package. I think it would be a noticeable thread we could draw neatly through. These, that was kind of go- what I was going for. Well, yeah. I, would, I was thinking is sort of uh, attention to line because I feel like that's what OMD added over the Kraut rock and um, I mean we didn't really have any. Nah, I guess good, no. Good, I was talking about the whole episode. Tying yeah, no. I'm saying yeah. um, I, I think that Sufjan Stevens writes great lines. Brahms was a great letter. Like like just simply if you look at it on a, a horizontal level, I don't know. Maybe that's a that's always been a concept that's very hard to describe to non musicians. I found and that personally myself took a very long time for me to just wrap my head around. You know, it was like the different. What do you even mean by horizontal versus vertical in music? Most people, you just start to use words like that, and immediately they just don't even understand, you know? So it's just like they were both so, yeah. good melodic writers. Attention to the horizontal was going to be my thread, but I guess that's <laughs> sort of out there. I thought it's, it's a topic onto itself. <laughs> well, I would say that for any listeners who, who hear that, who hear it described that way, and they think, I don't know what they're, I don't get it. Mm-hmm. Um, which is, which is an, a very, you know, natural and common reaction because it's, it's really tough to talk about music. It's so abstract. Because it's completely abstract, it's completely temporal, and we use it to sort of do things we can't talk about in the first place. We music about them. If you hear us describe something, like Anthony mentioned, just simply as something happening horizontally in music as opposed to vertically, and you think, I just don't know what they're talking about, then I think that might be good fodder to maybe inspire some folks to go listen to the music that we were using it to describe and seeing if you can figure it out. Because I think you can. I mean, if you get the, a reference point planted in your brain and you listen thoughtfully, you'll make the connection. And, and, and the way that we describe it, uh, I think, might make more sense. I hope so. I think we're describing it sensibly, but you're right. There may be a conceptual bar to entry for some folks. Yeah, because certain just... Using terms like that, if you've never heard that term used to describe music, it would immediately just be jarring, I feel like, and just would sort of be like, what do they really mean when they say that? I think, like, you could easily demonstrate it, just sort of like, for me, I always describe it as chords versus melody. When you play a single single notes in a row, like... As opposed to, yeah, at the same time. Versus a whole bunch of notes. Now sing a chord. (laughs) Can't do it. (laughs) And here we see one of the limits of talking about music, right? That would have been awesome if you'd just done that. Yeah, if you just sang a major chord. <laughs> I would, I would have, this would be the greatest podcast episode ever recorded. way to make recorded. two notes. Three, three is a lot trickier. <laughs> right. So I think uh, there's our cadence point. We've tied this into a neat little bow because of the carefully 
planned and mapped out structure of this episode. Mm -hmm. It's all about attention to the horizontal. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That was the name of my first band I was in in high school, Attention to the Horizontal. Anyway, uh, that's... Were you guys uh, good? I think we were... Were you playing French horn in there? Yeah, yeah, we were awesome. It was just a bunch of single lines that went on for 15, 20 minutes at a shot. Thanks for listening, everybody. You can find us online, as always, at loosefilter.com, and you can find just the podcast and subscribe either on SoundCloud or iTunes. We are freely available. 100 years, loosefilter.com, 100 times, loosefilter, loosefilter.com.